Good morning, everybody. I cannot believe we are less than three weeks away from Christmas Day. And so this morning, we got to get at this. We are kicking off our Christmas series, which is going to culminate on Christmas Eve, my favorite night of the year. Stay tuned for details on that. And this new series entitled, is entitled, appropriate enough for 2020, Worst Christmas Ever. But notice now, the graphic does not end with an exclamation point which is what I feel like the whole world would have you believe about this year. This is not going to be a declaration for me, and I hope it won't be for you either by the time we're done. And it's not a pronouncement. This is a question. Look, if you still have a pulse, if you're still sucking in air through your pie hole, you've been told over and over again, seemingly by everybody everywhere, that this is going to be the worst Christmas ever. And maybe you're thinking that, and I would understand. I mean, let's be honest. 2020 is going to have a lot of superlatives listed next to it in the history books. And in no way, please hear me on this, am I making light of this situation? I mean, at one level, it has been bleak. People very close to me, people that are part of this community, they've lost a lot financially, occupationally, relationally, and most painfully, family members and, and loved ones. So that's why I believe the truths of Christmas are more important and more needed and need to be understood more deeply and more personally this Christmas than any Christmas before. Now, I'm not going to be breaking any new ground here when I tell you that over the centuries, we have somewhat mythologized this scene. Now, I don't want anybody making any snide remarks in the comment section on Facebook about the condition of my beautiful manger set. This creche was my grandmother's, whom I loved and had a special relationship with, and and to this day, I still miss her terribly. As I remember, when I was a little boy, she got this set from saving up green stamps and redeeming them at a local store. Anybody remember S&H green stamps? I, I loved seeing this at our house each Christmas, and when she passed away over 20 years ago now, it was, it was the one thing of hers that I really wanted. Has it aged well? Uh, No, not at all. We lost a a wise man along the way some years ago, and this year when I opened it up, the the camel had been decapitated over the summer, and some of the sheep had lost some more of their legs. Yet, I treasure it. See, here's the thing for us, though. When, When you grow up around this scene, when it becomes, as it has in our culture, kind of ubiquitous, especially within the church, This scene has a propensity to lose its power and purpose. Truth winds up feeling like story or fiction, and real history can fade to fable. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Yeah, he laid it down in a feeding trough. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yeah, uh, no. I had four babies, and all four of them screamed their heads off if I even got up to go to the bathroom, let alone if they had a cow moo next to them. You see, when we fictionalize this scene, when we pull it out of its historical context, it loses power. And then what happens is Christmas just becomes, well, it becomes about an old story, a a fable-like quality overcomes it. Or worse yet, it just becomes about getting in the spirit of the season which is really hard to do during a pandemic. 
If this is just about getting in the spirit of the season, then yes, then this will be the worst Christmas ever. But it is so much more than that. And my goal over the next few weeks is to look at Christmas through the eyes of history. I want you to understand that it's true, it's historical, and why it matters. And why every person in this scene would have had every right to say that first Christmas night, this is the worst Christmas ever. Because for all of them in this scene, well, at a minimum, it was unexpected. And truthfully, it was quite disturbing. You see, the very first Christmas was a lot like a 2020 Christmas. It didn't start out as a merry time for most of those involved. Mary's confused and worried. Joseph is hurt and brokenhearted. The shepherds are afraid. The wise men are perplexed. They, they show up under threat. You see, that first Christmas came for everyone here at the wrong time, at the wrong place, to the wrong people, and under the wrong circumstances. That's what we're going to be looking at over this week, or these weeks. This week, I want to jump in looking at the wrong time, what turned out to be God's time. I've been thinking a lot this year about timing and my lack of appreciation for God's. God's timing, turns out, doesn't really often coincide with my ideals. My youngest daughter was a high school senior this year. She had her senior year of high school all ahead of her. Prom, graduation, sports championships were all kind of on the horizon, and every single one of those things wiped out. Never got a chance to live out the last couple months of her high school career. My son Caleb was a senior at Virginia Tech. We were supposed to watch him graduate after working incredibly hard with all of his classmates at Lane Stadium. Instead, we sat on our deck and watched a virtual ceremony on a, a small TV with Caleb in his cap and gown on our picnic table. I'm not even going to get into my daughter, Courtney, who got engaged this year, and she's been trying to plan a wedding. Have you tried to plan a wedding during a pandemic? Impossible. I have on more than one occasion. This is the truth. Grumble to God about this. Specifically, I found myself saying to him, why me, God, and why now? I think through of all of the, of, of the folks that I know that have come before me, people in my family, friends, people for the last hundred years who have lived without some pandemic messing up their lives. Why, God, did you have to have one come along during my lifetime? It's really messing things up. It's like I've given away a year of my precious time. Your timing, God, is inconvenient at best, and, and at well, at worst, it's derailing. Which brings me back to this scene. See, this scene, this birth narrative for most of us, well, for most of us, it begins this night, a, a starry night in Bethlehem. We see it as a moment in time, but I want you this morning to see that it is so much more than that. This is the culmination of a millennial long-kept promise. And for many, it was a forgotten hope. According to Jesus' disciple John, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, according to John, the scene did not just randomly happen, but this Jesus, whom his cousin John the Baptist would refer to later as the Lamb of God, this Lamb is, quote, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. In other words, guys, before the Big Bang was, this scene is. 
planned, not happenstance. The promise was first given at the dawn of creation. Many of you know the story. God creates man and woman in his image. He places them in the garden of paradise, and they choose to abandon God in favor of being a God of their own. Now, the story seems kind of crazy if you know it. They fall prey to the temptation of this snake, this creature in rebellion to God who entices them to join him by disobeying God and eating the fruit of a forbidden tree. And they do, and they fall. Sin enters the garden. Sin enters the world. But it's actually worse than that. Sin enters the human heart, the human story, the human condition. But I need you to see this. It's a precisely that moment that the promise first comes. God, in speaking to this sermon or serpent and, and, and to a future day, says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, in other translations, between the seed of a woman. Note that now. This is a promise not regarding the seed of a man, but the seed, the offspring of a woman and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Enter into our world the promise of one who is coming to crush the head of evil. Now, you fast forward in the Scriptures, about nine chapters in your Bible. Many generations have now come, and evil is reigning in people and on the face of the earth. And God mysteriously comes to a man named Abram and says, Go from your country your people in your father's household, to the land I'm going to show you. Which, of course, in antiquity was a pretty big ask, right? You're going to, out of nowhere, ask people in that day to do that because all they had was their country, their people, and their father's household. That was their everything. God is asking Abram to do that. Why would he do that? Well, because again, this promise was attached. Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And you, you're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I'll curse. And here comes the crazy part. All peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. Now that's a pretty good promise, right? You are going to be your own great nation, Abram. I'm going to make you famous. God's going to bless you and protect you. And, and again, the crazy part of the promise, everybody on earth is going to be blessed through you. That's an incredible promise. That might make you go. Unless you're Abram, who later, as some of you know, becomes known as Abraham. You know why? Because this promise, it seems kind of late. Abraham's 75 years old. He's an old man. His wife is way, way, way past childbearing age. God appears late. This is a promise that can't be kept. But the scriptures say that despite all of that, Abraham believed. Abraham, get this now, believed in the promise of God, which at the time seemed wholly, completely, and utterly unbelievable. Now, did he believe it perfectly? No, he didn't. In fact, if you know the story, he actually screws a lot of things up. Tries to take matters into his own hands and moves God's timing along faster, right? 
cooks up a plan to have this child with a servant of his wife's named Hagar. They have a son named Ishmael, but this is not the child of promise. Abraham and his wife Sarah actually cause a lot of problems in trying to help God keep his promises, to try to make God's promises come along on their timeline. Side note, church, God doesn't need our help in keeping his promises. He's fully capable of delivering on each and every one of them. So wait. Don't take measures in your own hands. You're likely going to mess things up. Now, God, despite the timing being all wrong and, and seemingly late, incredibly against all odds, he keeps this promise to Abraham and Sarah, and they have a son. If you've been around the church, you might know his name was Isaac. And then Isaac, he goes on to have a son named Jacob. And Jacob, well, Jacob is prodigious. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them, Joseph, is sold into slavery in Egypt by 10 of his brothers because, well, to sum it up quickly, they didn't like his attitude and they weren't a fan of his technical or dream coat. But in Egypt, this Joseph, he rises to a position of influence within the Egyptian kingdom with the Pharaoh. And he saves his family and the Egyptians from famine. And believe it or not, crazy story. Within a few generations, Abraham's offspring, led by Joseph in Egypt, grow into this nation. But they're not the nation promised or hoped for. They're a nation of slaves working inside of Egypt. And they likely didn't feel all that blessed. And they certainly didn't seem to be any kind of position to bless all the people on earth. And you have to remember now, these generations that are born into this Egyptian captivity, born in a sense with the Egyptian boot on their necks, sense to making brick after brick after brick in the Egyptian sun, generation after generation after generation, 400 years of bricks, each of these children is raised with the knowledge of the promise made to Father Abraham that God was going to make them into a nation. And he seems to have done that all right. But they certainly seem far from great and they're in no position to help anyone. But then, just when all seems lost, people might check out, give up hope, God sends Moses to deliver his people from this slavery. You know the story, frogs, plagues, boils, the death of the firstborn, and by the time, the, by the time that, that he's done, that Moses is done with Pharaoh, no one in Egypt is feeling all that blessed by Abraham's descendants. But eventually, God leads his people into this promised land, the land of Canaan. But that creates conflict with those already living there, the Canaanites, who as war rages and their land is lost, they're not feeling especially blessed by the descendants of Abraham either. And so now it's been around a thousand years since that promise was made to Abraham. And this nation, which has now become known as the kingdom of Israel, this nation is no longer a nomadic, wandering people but they are a country, they have a homeland. And while God, who seemingly kept his promise, he wanted to be their king. He told the nation they didn't need a king. The people of God, in a dangerous world full of, full of physical enemies, well, they wanted an earthly king and not a heavenly one. The most famous of which was David. You know him as the boy who took down to Goliath and went on to write about half of the Psalms. David, the warrior king, well, he raises Israel into a military powerhouse. And he's followed by his king Solomon, who builds Israel up into an economic powerhouse. 
Solomon goes on to build the first temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world. The inside ceiling was 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, 50 feet high. The highest point on the temple was 20 stories tall, and it stood as a testimony to the power of the great nation of Israel. But it didn't stand for long. Because just when the nation seemed poised to be all that God promised it would be, Solomon the king began to worship the gods of other nations. Instead of blessing the world, Israel became just like the rest of the world. And as a result, God kept a promise that he made to Solomon, which was that if he did this, he would allow the nation to fall and be divided and the temple torn down. Andy Stanley in his book, Who Needs Christmas, picks up the timeline wonderfully from here. Israel, after Solomon's death, was split into two, a northern kingdom known as Israel and a southern kingdom known as Judah. In the year 732 B.C., Israel is overrun by Assyria. You can look this up. It's actually called the Assyrian Captivity. Assyria, in an attempt to completely destroy Israel, takes people from Israel, Israel forcibly and resettles them all over other nations and then imports people from all the other nations to populate Israel. And so now, for all intent and purposes, Israel, seemingly along with the promise of God, is gone. It's dead. There's no way back from this. The nation doesn't even exist anymore. And as for Judah, the southern kingdom, sometime later they find themselves teetering on the brink of destruction too as Assyria readies to conquer them. And it's during this very troubling time in Israel's history that God sends them the prophet Isaiah, whom we hear so much about at Christmas time. Here's what God says to Isaiah as Israel appears doomed to be a smoldering ash heap in history. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. To which, as Stanley points out, the remaining southern kingdom folks must have been saying, you're kidding, right? A light to the world, this light is about to go out. Salvation to the ends of the earth, we can't even save ourselves. Great promise, God, but you missed the opportunity. We had the opportunity, but you missed it. It's too late. It can't happen. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong circumstances. It sure had to seem that way when Assyria invaded Judah and overtook it too. Several hundred more years go by, generation after generation, grow up knowing the promises made to Abraham, knowing that, that they had the potential to come true at one point in their history, but seemingly and painfully, they've come up so short. And it was right in the midst of Israel's darkest hour. In the last book of your Old Testament, the prophet Malachi records God saying this, my name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. And again, as Stanley points out, to the people of, of Israel, to Judah, this must have seemed ridiculous. God's name is being mocked among the nations. His name was a joke. No one from the surrounding nations was looking at the fate of Israel and thinking, well, I want to worship their God. Israel couldn't feed or protect itself. It looked like a nation on its last legs. And then it got worse. In 63 BC, Rome sends Pompey the Great to the area of Judah and Galilee. And he conquers town after town until he was outside the walls of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And so began the violent Roman occupation of what came to be called the Holy Land. For 400 years, God's promises to Abraham seemed to be null and void. A promise made and a promise unkept. 
But then, something extraordinary happened. This happened. Paul, in writing the Galatians, put it this way. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You know, when it happened, it, it happened just when everyone had given up. It happened just when everyone had said it was over. You know when it happened? It happened just when everyone thought God had forgotten about his promise. It happened when everybody was certain that it was impossible for God to come through. It was at that very moment, the darkest of moments, that God sent the angel Gabriel to a virgin, a virgin, the offspring of not a man but a woman, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. This virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Well, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And here's the promise. His kingdom will never end. Church, I, I need you to understand, this is not a standalone event in time. This is not a, a, a fable or a myth or a narrative or a story. This is the ultimate fulfillment of an incredible promise laid out before the foundations of the earth, spoken at the very dawn of creation, given to an old man named Abram from the town of Ur of the Chaldeans. Nowhere. It was foreshadowed through the centuries by Isaac and Jacob, Moses and David, it was seemingly squashed for centuries by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, and yet kept. And it was kept at just the right time, just when the set time had fully come. And you see, this is why Mary sang. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary grew up knowing the story, but now she knew the truth. Guys, God's timing is not our timing, but God's timing is perfect, and mine's not. This promise was a long time in coming. In fact, it was 400 years before this scene where God had sent no prophets to speak. It looked to everybody for generations that God had forgotten, but God's grace comes at the appointed hour. This Jesus, he would grow up to minister all over this Roman-ruled southern kingdom of Judah. There's a story in his ministry that Mark records that reminds us of the key to the biblical story. 
He writes, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. But Jesus got waylaid along the way, and, and he gets involved in another situation. And while Jesus was still dealing with that, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why, why bother the teacher anymore? In other words, his friends come to him and tell him, it's too late. It's not going to work out. Jesus messed, messed it up. God missed his opportunity. Timing's all wrong. There's nothing to be done now. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong circumstances. I, I love the wording. Why even bother? Just give up. Give in to your circumstances. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Abraham, go. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Moses, cross. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Mary, give birth. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I love how Tim Keller rephrased what, what Jesus was saying to Jairus here. If you want to impose your time frame on me, you'll never feel loved by me. And it'll be your fault because I do love you. I will fulfill my promises. Worst Christmas ever? I don't, I don't think so, friends. God hasn't abandoned us or forsaken us or forgotten us. Every promise he has ever made is still at work in his perfect time he is keeping it. And we need to know this. The world needs to know this Christmas more than ever. God may seem to have forgotten, but right now in you and with you and in the midst of coronavirus, with, through, and despite coronavirus, he is in the process of arranging everything to fulfill his great promises. I had to remember that this week. This Thanksgiving, my beautiful mother, I think for the first time in her life, sat alone by herself, had to cook herself Thanksgiving dinner, eat it by herself, because she has COPD so bad, it's, it's way too dangerous for her to be around others. Hey, Mom, this Christmas, God's promise for healing is true, and it's coming. I have a friend that goes to church here at Menem. This week she had some lymph nodes removed as, as she teeters on, on, on perhaps a, a third bout of, of stage four cancer. See, my friend needs to know as she's watching this at home this morning that God has not forgotten her. There's nothing a test result can do to invalidate one of these promises of God. As I was working on this message this week, I, I closed up my computer and I was headed home. And I was coming up Schoolies Mountain in Long Valley and as, as I was going up, a hearse passed me coming by in the other direction and as it went by, I just kind of heard in my spirit the Lord say to me, hey John, promise kept. And it's because of this promise, it's because of this truth, that this scene is not the last tidbit of my grandmother that I'm going to hold on to. I'm going to hold on to my grandmother again. I'm, I'm going to close with this. 
Matthew begins his telling the birth of Christ, not with Mary or Joseph or wise men, nothing from this scene yet, because he, he understood it started way before this. So he starts with a genealogy. Why? Well, first he wants to connect this scene to all of God's great promises. He writes what we just recounted, that thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now check this out. So there have been six sevens of generations, and that makes Jesus the beginning of the seventh generation. Now remember, when did Jesus come? At just the right time, at the appointed time. Well, what's the significance? Why is Matthew writing it this way? Well, in Israel's history, numbers carry significance. In Genesis, on what day does God rest in, in the creation story? Well, he, he rests on the seventh day. It goes further. In the Mosaic Law, every seven, year, the far, seven years, the farmers were to let the, gra- the ground lie fallow, to give it a chance to replenish. So the farmers were to rest in the seventh year. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, we're told the last year of the seventh period of seven years, the 49th year, that's the year of Jubilee. In that year, all the slaves were to be freed, all the debts were to be forgiven, and the land and the people were to rest from their burdens. Tim Keller summed it up this way. Matthew is telling us, and I, I, church, I need you to hear this Christmas, especially if somebody tells you that this is going to be the worst Christmas ever. Matthew is telling us that rest comes through Jesus Christ. Do you understand that Jesus was not born once upon a time, but he broke into time and space and that he, was, he accomplished exactly what God promised? Your salvation? Now, friends, how do you get that? How do you get the rest? How do you get that salvation? The same way Abraham did. The same way Jarius did. Despite your circumstances, despite the timing, despite God's seeming absence, you believe. Worst Christmas ever? I I don't think so. God is at work. He has appointed you and I to be alive right now. He means for you and I to live, to be alive in this time, at this moment, through this pandemic, and this Christmas. He is at work like never before in our lives. And all you have to do to experience it, to find his salvation, to know his peace, this Christmas, believe. Believe.